Coming to you from the Media Factory in Burlington South End, this is 99.3 FM, WBTV LP Burlington. Hey folks, my name is Infinite, and for almost a decade, I've had the privilege of working as a community organizer on issues related to education equity. Many years ago, one of my favorite community organizers of all time, Bob Moses, warned that in our country, we've been running a share crop of education, meaning that the education we usually wind up receiving in our public schools is largely predetermined and based on the family we're born into. And if we carry that forward into the information age, then we'll have serfs in our towns and cities, just like we had serfs in the Delta, Mississippi during the industrial era. This is the huge challenge facing our country, he said. This prophecy by Bob Moses is now upon us. Welcome to Back to Freedom School, a deeper dive into education equity in the state of Vermont where we'll be discussing issues like school funding, literacy, labor, community schools, and the various ways that white supremacy culture shows up as one of the root problems in our public education system. Thank you for listening. Hi, Paul. Welcome to the program. How are you? Good. How are you? It's um, nice to be here. I'm here with uh, Paul Silo, a colleague of mine on the Vermont Education Equity Project. And uh, this is the conversation everybody's been waiting for, school, <laughs> school funding. <laughs> we hope. <laughs> yeah. If you could just uh, spend a few minutes giving us some background on yourself, what you've been working on, how you got here, maybe your experience as a legislator, uh, brief history of public assets and the Vermont Education Equity Project. I'm president of uh, Public Assets Institute. And uh, Public Assets Institute is, before the pandemic, we were located in Montpelier. We actually still have an office there, but we're all working from home. We're a staff of five and we're now working remotely. But we analyzed Vermont tax budget and economic policy from the perspective of everyday Vermonters. And what that means is that often what you hear when you hear about taxes, the state budget or the economy, it's usually from the legislature, the governor, or the business community. And the perspective is often sort of institutional, I guess I could say. You know, from the business community, it's from a management perspective. It's a business management perspective. From the legislature and the governor, they tend to be thinking about um, it's not that they're not thinking about Vermonters, but they're thinking about how to make the money work and the economy work from a system standpoint. And uh, the example I use is that, for example, um, the state is, you know, has concerns about how much money it puts into Medicaid to support the health care of, of Vermonters. So one of the things they're concerned about is how to balance the Medicaid budget. And one of the ways to do that is to cut benefits to people. And it doesn't make the costs for people go, go away when they cut the benefits. It just cuts the cost that the state pays. So we're interested in what's happening to those people. That's a, the distinction when we say we're interested in looking at it from the perspective of everyday Vermonters. Public assets is in its 18th year. I started public assets after 
serving 10 years in the legislature representing, I live in Hardwick and I represented Hardwick, Walden and Standard in the Vermont House uh, from 1989 to 1998. During my time in the legislature, I served on the uh, tax uh, writing Ways and Means Committee in the House and also as majority leader, four years in, on Ways and Means and four years as majority leader. And it was a a real education those 10 years in terms of understanding how policy making happens. I didn't really understand it before I was in the legislature. And so that was, it was kind of like going to graduate school, you know, to really kind of get a different understanding of how this all works. I came out of there, out of the legislature, feeling that people needed to have a broader understanding, particularly about the, the money issues. You know, that's why tax budget and economic policy is what we focus on, because it's often those issues that are deal breakers in the legislature. You know, a good policy idea won't move forward because of the cost. And also, um, you know, we've seen a widening gap between upper and lower income people in Vermont and over the last several decades. And that's the result of policy decisions that are made in the legislature and in Washington. So, so we want to actually be in the middle of those conversations on behalf of Vermonters. Uh, one of our key issue areas is um, education funding. Uh, that's where we get to the Vermont Education Equity Project. What brought you to education, Paul? Uh, that's actually why I went into the legislature in 1988 when I ran for the legislature. I was on the select board in Hardwick. I couldn't understand why our taxes were so high relative to other towns. And I started digging into it and found that it was related to how money was distributed through the education formula mm -hmm. and that it was making it hard for communities like Hardwick, essentially communities that didn't have much of a tax base to provide the resources for the education of the kids in the community. And so as I dug into it, and it took years really, uh, I came to the conclusion that we, um, we really needed to have a transformational change in the way we uh, funded schools. And we finally got that passed in 1997, the, what became Act 60. And then later, when I wasn't in the legislature, Act 68 was a, an amendment to that. There've been a number of smaller amendments, but the, the fundamental legislation was passed in 1997. So that's what I went in the legislature to do. And it really came out of my work in the community on the select board. Thank you for that context. That's really... I mean, this is the first time I'm hearing this, you, you know, even though, you know, we've worked together for a few years, uh, you know, it's really good to hear that context, uh, because I think some folks come to the education issue um, aren't able to uh, stay with it as long. It seems like it takes a lot of stamina to um, really uh, uh, understand all of the different nuances, especially in a state like Vermont with, I hear, have the most school board members per capita <laughs> in the state in terms of school governance, pre-school consolidation. Consolidation, yeah. Yeah, the other thing I would mention is um, that I also felt public education was, in, it wasn't just that there was a distribution formula that seemed unfair or that was unfair, but it also just se seemed unfair to me. But I also understood that public education was actually a critical state function. And I would say probably the most important of all the state roles. In fact, it's the only one mentioned in the Vermont constitution. It's the only state service mm. that's mentioned in the constitution. 
individuals that framed the Vermont Constitution believed that that was the case. And I think it's still true, you know, that that's why we put so much of our resources into public education is that it's a critical state function. You know, we've been working with Voices for Vermont's Children for a number of years, and Voices has been a very strong advocate on behalf of kids uh, related to equitable public education. Uh, Voices came out with a report in 2016 called Education Matters that was actually, it's not that it was exactly news to me, but it was, it wasn't front and center for me that children of color, children with disabilities and children from low income, economically challenged households Mm -hmm. uh, were essentially um, having a hard time in schools and that they were more likely to get kicked out of school. They were just struggling in school. It really just, that report was very powerful from my standpoint. And um, so we got into a conversation with with Voices about working on a project together where we're the finance people. You know, we think about education funding, but we're interested in it, as I said, because we believe that public education is important and equitable education is important. And we recognize that funding, equitable funding, which we do have Vermont, despite its warts, we actually have the most equitable school funding system in the country. There's improvements that we can make, and I can talk about those, but that's not enough to ensure that we have equitable education, that student, what students experience in school is, you know, an equitable uh, education. So that's the work is the, of this partnership of the Vermont Education Equity Project, is the partnership between marrying the the finance part, which is a big part, and the student outcome part, you know, what actually happens in schools and the communities across the state and what kind of services we're delivering and how we're delivering them so that kids get what they need. Okay. And so can we just like briefly, you know, can you just briefly go through some of these different uh, issues on the public asset side? Yeah. The property tax is a big funding source for public education. And the property tax is essentially regressive, which means that the lower income people pay a higher percentage of their income in property taxes than upper income people. It is widely acknowledged that we should have a progressive system, that people with lower incomes should pay a lower percentage of their income and people with upper incomes, higher incomes should pay a higher percentage. Just really briefly explain how lower income people are paying more right now? Yeah, so this is a little complicated, but it's, uh, we'll start okay. with just the property tax. So if you're paying a property tax, say on your home, on whatever your home is, it's based on the appraised value of your home. And the appraised value of your home may or may not have anything to do with your actual income. In other words, you may live in a home, for example, in a community that is being gentrified where property values are going up but when you bought the house, it was affordable for you, but you couldn't buy it now. Right. You know, what that means is that you're now paying property taxes on a home that you wouldn't be able to buy because your income isn't adequate for that. So the question is, do we think that person should be required to sell their home and move to a community that's more affordable for them? In which case you then don't have diversified communities with people of different incomes. You're kind of moving toward a community where all the rich people live together and all the poor people live together. And so what we have been advocating for and we think is actually fair and I think is widely understood to be fair is that a system based on income where people 
instead of paying on the value of their property, which is not really connected to their income, right. that they pay based on how much income they have. For example, if you, during the pandemic, lost your job and your income was cut, or one person in your household lost their job and all of a sudden your income went, was cut in half, your property tax bill doesn't care that your income was cut in half. You still have to pay that bill, whatever it is. Yep. Whereas if, if the bill was based on your income, then your bill would be cut in half. And similarly, if your income doubled because you got a better job or somebody who wasn't working in the household is now working, your bill would go up. So you pay when you have money and you don't pay when you don't have money. And I think it's widely accepted. Like I said, it's widely accepted that this would be a sensible policy. And, and so we've been working for honestly decades trying to move in this direction and actually had some progress this year with the uh, the tax structure commission came out with their report in February that actually recommended that we move to a system in Vermont where schools are funded more based on income that we essentially would do away with the property tax on primary residences and replace it with an income tax. What so, about commercial? Well, the commercial property, which is so a business property, land that's undeveloped and second homes. Okay. are taxed in Vermont based on one rate statewide by set by the legislature. It's, it's difficult to tie that to income because a lot of people from out of state own that property, that you have corporations that own the property. So it's difficult to say it's progressive or regressive. Like a flat tax. It's basically a flat tax. Yeah, it's one rate. Everybody pays the same rate. And frankly, businesses are mostly concerned about not having a competitive disadvantage by having a high tax rate in one town and a low tax rate in another. So the main thing we're concerned about is moving the primary residences off the property tax into uh, an income-based tax. I I should add, uh, Infinite, that the current system does have a provision called income sensitivity that allows people to pay based on their income uh, in part. The problem with it is it's so complicated that people don't even understand, they don't understand how their tax is calculated. You could be paying just based on your income, but it's on your property tax bill. You could be paying some property tax and some based on income. And again, all of it's on your property tax bill. So it's hard to know what's going on by looking at your bill, the way it's currently constructed. So our thought is get rid of all that chaos just go to an income-based system so that people know whatever their income was last year, you know, when they vote on their school budget, they would have apply it to that income and that would be their tax. They would know what it is. That's a big thing that we've been working on and actually kind of steadily making some, some progress. But, but as you pointed out earlier, perseverance is actually a really important quality <laughs> in policy change. I mean, you have to hang in there. And yeah. uh, there is an element of the last person standing is, is uh, yeah. um, gets it done. So I, I learned that when I was in the legislature. And I, I think that that is an important part of the conversation. Well, yeah, what, I, what I'm, I'm finding a little bit interesting about that, you know, and how much time we have spent on that, it seems a little separate from Act 60 and Act 68. How are they related? I mean, how is the income-based approach related to, yeah. Um, If at all. Oh, it is. It definitely is. In fact, uh, when we originally proposed what became Act 60, the House bill that started the process actually had an income tax in it. That was the the House plan. 
Okay. And uh, that was taken out in the Senate. And so we concluded at the time that this made sense and that's really how the system should be structured, but we just couldn't get it done at the time. You know, it was a lot of change. And I, and I think people felt like this was just too much to try to do uh, at one time. So uh, that was in 1997. So here we are decades later and we're still talking about this, but I think there's more interest in it now and more understanding about it than there, than there was at the time. So it is related and it's the way it works essentially is that primary residences pay about 25% of the total cost of public education. Vermont in 1997 shifted from some locally raised revenue and some state raised revenue to all state raised revenue. So essentially we have no local tax in the system now. It's all state revenue. And what that means is that it used to be that a school district would pass a budget divide by the value of their property, the grand list value of their property, which is simply the total value of property in a community divided by a hundred. And, and that would set the tax rate for the town and towns with expensive property or a lot of property or whatever would have low tax rates and towns with uh, very little property or very low value property uh, would have, uh, and not very many you know, businesses or that sort of thing, would have high tax rates. And those tax rates were the things that were making it hard for some schools to provide adequate services for their kids. There were some towns in the Northeast Kingdom, for example, that, and uh, in Lamoille County and other places in the state that you know, were actually running classrooms in, the shower, in shower stalls, or they had you know, temporary buildings outside their school buildings, you know, just that they had, they needed additional space and they couldn't afford to add onto the, uh, the building. So, so there were a lot of stories about uh, school districts that were really struggling and were not actually able to deliver services to their kids because they couldn't afford it. They, the tax rate would be way too high. Going to an income-based system means that we're only going to, we, we, as I mentioned earlier, we would be getting rid of the property tax completely, school property tax completely on primary residences, which is about 25% of the current revenue and moving to an income tax. And that would allow, and this is the, that's the part of the system when school district voters who are residents of a community vote on a school budget, they, it's their income rate that would be going up and down as opposed to their property rate that would be going up and down with, in other words, higher spending per pupil, higher tax rate, lower spending per pupil, lower tax rate, same spending per pupil in two towns, same tax rate. That's the equity in the system. So that's how it would work. And And that's actually not even in the weeds infinite. That's, that's just the (laughs) overview. That's the grass top. huh? (laughs) Okay. Well, thank you for that overview. And I think I don't know how exactly we should segue to the more, I would say, popular topic where there's a lot of attention, you know. Yeah, the one that's currently in the news. Yeah. Um, and that's the other thing I'll say is that we have, we've been doing over the years at Public Assets is, you know, there's always some controversy. There's been controversy about, uh, there's been a decline in student population statewide of about 1% a year for the past 20 years, 15 or 20 years. Mm. And so there's been concern that the schools haven't been making staffing cuts 
fast enough in response to that. And we actually did a staffing study to look at this. And the problem is that if you just think about it with staffing, if you have a classroom of 20 kids and 10% of them, say over 10 years, 1% a year, 10% of them are no longer there. You now have 18 kids. Can you get rid of a teacher? Can you actually say, we had 20 kids, now we have 18, we're gonna, we're gonna reduce staff? It's challenging. It works in the other direction too. If you had more kids, if it went from 20 to 22 or 20 to 24, would you add a teacher? Probably not. You know, that there's a range in there where you're gonna have a teacher in the classroom. And so that's the challenge of managing school districts is that it, it's not like, you know, you're producing fewer widgets and so you need fewer people on the assembly line. That it's, there's some of that, you know, you can, there has been change and staffing has been reduced, but it doesn't happen sort of as quickly as the change is happening. So that's an issue that's come up, you know, people, some governors, this governor in particular has felt that, that we were overstaffed. And I think that it's not clear that that's the case in terms of, you know, delivering what students need. Another one is student waiting and W-E-I-G-H-T-I-N-G. Uh, what student waiting is about is that certain students cost more to educate for school districts. And so the way it's dealt with in, the, in counting students is that you count them as more than one person. In other words, give them more weight as a, as a way to provide additional funding to the school district. So let's just say a school district spends 10,000 per pupil, $10,000 per pupil. But for a, a child that comes from a poverty background, we currently add 25% as a weight. So they're counted as one and a quarter children, which means that brings an additional $2,500 to that school district as the way to support the education of that child. So the question came up legitimately, you know, in 1997, when we passed uh, Act 60, there were weights in place and we really didn't change them. What we did is we shifted a transportation weight. There was a weight having to do with transportation in the school district that we felt wasn't really an appropriate way to deal with transportation. So we shifted it to a, a thing called categorical aid. So there's two ways that the system makes corrections for you know, exceptional costs, costs that are you know, not the same across the state district to district. So it's a way of making sure that kids get what they need in specific districts. So one is you, weight the student count, the way I just described. The other is you provide from the education fund categorical aid. So for example, with special education, any child that's on an IEP, an individual education plan, I think it's IEP is, that they, the state reimburses the school district 60% for some costs, 90% of other costs for what we are called special education. So that's categorical aid. There was also, uh, there's also small schools grant for smalls, small schools. If you qualify, you get some additional money because you're a small school and that has challenges. So we just, uh, for the most part in 1997, passed along the weights that were already in place from the 1980s. There really needed to be a study of, are these the right weights? You know, first of all, you have a different economy, you have greater income inequality that uh, we know that from our own analysis now than we did, you know, 25 years ago. As situations change, you need a study. So the, the legislature 
I asked the Agency of Education to get a study done and they contracted with the University of Vermont and the University of Vermont worked with Rutgers University in New Jersey. They produced a study with recommendations on waiting and it came out in December of 2019. And it was immediately controversial because it has a very dramatic change in the weights. So I just mentioned that our current weights for children in poverty is 0.25. Yep. We count them as one and a quarter children. This study recommends that, that a student in poverty would be counted as four students. From 1.25 to four? Yeah, from 1.25 to four. Okay. So the weight, instead of being 0.25, is three, which is 12 times you know, 12 times the current weight. That's pretty dramatic. And, and frankly, is not done anywhere in the country. There's the highest weight for poverty that we've been able to find was in one of the mid-Atlantic states, and it's a little less than one. Most states are less than 0.5. You know, there's no weight that's more than 0.5. You know, immediately created like, wow, this is like, this isn't just some fine tuning here. This is a major change in, in terms of how we move money around. But I think that the important thing about the study is that it really points out the need for resources in these school districts that have these children that are more costly to provide an equitable education for. There are children in poverty. It's a, that's a big one. Children with, uh, who are English language learners. English is not their first language. Small schools, schools in rural parts of the state. These are all things that were identified in the study that require adjustments. So there's no question that there needs to be adjustments made to uh, how money moves in these, in these cases where school districts have these exceptional costs. The question is, how do you do it? And the two tools we have, as I mentioned, are student waiting and categorical aid. So I'll stop for this, you know, just for a minute here and say that there's been some conversation in this, in this debate that's going on now. There's a special committee that's been set up and that is meeting this summer, a legislative committee and discussing this issue. They're supposed to make their recommendations by December to the back to the full house for action in the 2022 session. But what I'll say is this is not, a lot of the press and accounts or whatever have called this an overhaul of the school funding system. And it is not an overhaul of the school funding system. Essentially, no one that I know of is proposing to introduce new mechanisms into the system or to change the basic structure of how money moves in the system. What we're talking about is how much money is going to move through uh, the mechanisms that already exist through the weighting structure and through categorical aid or, or some combination of the two. At least so far, that's what we're talking about. Uh, so it's not an overhaul. It's, it's limited to this conversation. And frankly, that conversation is complicated enough. <laughs> and so I don't think they you know, have time or uh, inclination to try to dig into you know, re overhauling the whole system. Um, and I think they're right for, you know, about that. We wrote a blog in last month, uh, Public Assets, that sort of laid out, and this was after months of you know, research, talking with the researchers, reading their, they had, you know, extensive data that they had analyzed for all the towns in the state and just pouring over that and debating it internally. Uh, we came to the conclusion that waiting really is not the, the mechanism to use 
for this, at least not totally. It may be that there's some change to weighting, but weighting really should be like a fine tuning tool, not a, a tool to move large amounts of money into a school district that has uh, these students that uh, are more costly to educate. Are there any like particular risks that you're, you're thinking it might have if, if we did go the, the waiting route? Yeah. So the reasons we, we came to that conclusion are that, first of all, waiting only applies to the student count only, only impacts taxes on primary residences, which, as I mentioned, is 25%. We actually think that the cost, and there is a cost, of moving more money into certain districts should be borne by the whole tax base that's funding education, not just the 25% that's coming from primary residences. Uh, I think that's that would have a large tax impact on primary residences in some towns. So it would, might even be it might even be more regressive than it already is. I don't know that it would actually make it more regressive. It just would make it more onerous because it would it would just be a bigger tax lift for those communities, or they would have to cut their spending. They would always have the option of cutting their spending. But that's also not easy, you know, when you look at your school and, you know, whatever, you're trying to decide what it is you can afford to do, it would change that conversation pretty significantly. You know, to your point, Infinite, I think it would be burdensome, however you want to describe the burden. I don't know if technically it would make it more aggressive, but it would definitely become uh, a bigger challenge for the, everybody in the school district, I think. Um, so that's one, is that it's, it falls on a small tax base, you know, the uh, primary residences. And that seems like not a good idea when it should, it, you should spread it around to the whole tax base. Another one is that we, the way we term it is that when you do weighting, you actually create distortions within the system. And those distortions, when the weighting numbers are small, uh, are relatively small. When the weighting numbers become big, like what's being proposed, then you have large distortions. And the distortions are uh, related to the fact that higher spending per pupil district gets more money from the weights than a lower spending district. So if you spend 10,000 per pupil and you have a weighting of 1.25 or 1.5, let's say, make it easy, you have a, a total, in other words, a student, let's say a student in poverty has a weight of 0.5, they're counted as one and a half students. If you spend 10,000 per pupil, that's your, the district is getting 15,000 for that student, not necessarily to put toward that student, but for the operations to support the education of that student. If you spend 16,000 per pupil, then you get $24,000 for that student. The consultants have said, and I think it actually makes sense, that it's not more costly to educate a student in poverty in a higher spending district than it is in a lower spending district. And that distortion starts to become significant when you are multiplying by four, as opposed to just 1.5 or 1.25. So in the case of the 10,000 per pupil, you'd be getting $40,000 per pupil for a child in poverty. And if you were at 15,000 per pupil, you'd be getting 60,000 for child in poverty. I think that's way different than 
what the consultants imagined or were thinking. And uh, what they tried to do is translate their work, the analysis they did from national, regional, and state policy into state needs, I guess you could say, is like what, what's effective in, in helping students in poverty or English language learners or whatever, and translating that into the system that Vermont has. And But this is the result. If you use weighting, you end up having these distortions. That's another reason why we were concerned about it. And the third reason is that it adds to the confusion. As, as you've seen from this conversation, uh, it's not easy to explain this. Most people do not understand how the current system works. And we're convinced that we need to be moving toward a system that's easier for taxpayers and voters to understand than making it more complicated. And so if you go to a weighting system that changes the student count as much as is being proposed, people tend to think, okay, we have 500 kids at the high school or a thousand kids at the high school. If you're in a community that's weighted up, in other words, you have a lot of kids with low income or English language learners, you could actually have a count that was 1,200 or 1,500 students. Or the reverse, if you happen to have a community that's lower, you could be have a lower number, 800 students instead of 1,000. It just starts to make the numbers about how much you're spending per pupil confusing to voters who are, you know, we use direct democracy decision-making for schools. People go and, you know, everyday Vermonters go and vote on these questions. And you mean yes or no? <laughs> yes or no. That's right. They vote on the question of whether to pass the budget or not. Yes. It's a proposed budget by the school board and there's a yes or no question right. and they, they voted up or down. And the system needs to be understandable and easy enough to communicate to those folks. And this would make it more complicated to do that. And because of these, because we'd, we'd be monkeying with the student count in a, in a big way. For those reasons, there are others, but uh, those are the main reasons. I think okay. we think uh, waiting is not the way to go and that categorical aid, direct aid from the ed fund to the school district on a per student, you know, every, every identified student who's, you know, meets the qualification of being low income or English language learner, or, you know, whatever the definition of a rural school is or a small school, that additional aid goes to that community from the education fund. And the money comes from all the money that goes into the education fund. Okay. So in the next 10 minutes or so, just talk a little bit about some of the, you know, broader challenges and opportunities in the current and future policy and political landscape, you know, as it relates to public education in Vermont. You know, what else should we be thinking about? What would you say, you know, are some of, you know, the threats and opportunities to uh, education equity, broadly speaking? That's actually a tough question. I think that um, because I think there's a number of challenges and opportunities. I, I think, first of all, the demographics issue that has been raised repeatedly, you know, about the 1% decline in student population. Right. The response has, there's been sort of a repeated response from governors and from let some legislators uh, saying that we need to cut, 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 you know, Act 46, which was a school, you mentioned earlier, a school consolidation bill yeah. from several years ago. Yeah, actually, um, I, I believe they refer to it as unification. <laughs> right, right. So I, I don't have a problem calling it 
consolidation. I mean, in, in effect, that's what wasn't really intended. And, and there were two camps in that, two schools of thought, if you will, in the, the Act 46 conversation. One was that students in small schools and rural areas weren't getting the opportunities that other kids were getting. And the other was cost, that it was more expensive to educate kids and in those areas. And um, so we needed to consolidate uh, school districts. The fundamental problem with the way that that whole issue was approached is that we were planning looking backwards. In other words, you look back and say, well, for 20 years, we've had a decline of 1% a year. And then sort of you start to make your school system fit what happened in the last 20 years, as opposed to looking ahead and saying, what do we want to create in the next 20 years or the next 50 years? Our thought about it was, if we want community, we keep talking about, you know, wanting young people to move to Vermont communities. Well, you're not encouraging young people to move to Vermont communities with their kids if you've closed the school or if you've made an anemic school system that you, the challenge is how do you get through a dry period, you know, a, a period where you have this decline and not see it as the forever, you know, the forever for the state, but you get through it and then you have a vision for the future. You know, there are some communities now that are trying to undo these unification efforts, you know, these mergers. I think there's probably, that's probably going to continue for a while. There's a lot of sort of buyer's remorse as individual school districts realize that they have lost, you know, they're, they're, there's proposals to close schools in their community and, the, and that the kids in their community or including elementary school kids would have to go to another town to, you know, go to school, ride, take long bus rides and all that. So I think that's an ongoing issue, but I think this challenge of looking forward, not looking back, I think remains. Another one is on the school funding front, you know, there's, a, there's constant pressure to reduce spending. I don't know how many times we hear uh, about how Vermont is the highest spending state in the country. We're not literally, but we are in the top five if you just look at the numbers, you know, in spending per pupil. Uh, we're typically in the top five. But one of the problems is, this is the only point I'll make on this one, because I think it's an important one to put into the conversation. There is no place in the country that has as equitable a, a system as we have in Vermont, which means that you don't have huge disparities from town to town in how much they spend per pupil. If you go to Texas or if you go to some of the other states in the country, you'll see that there are districts that spend a half of what other districts or a third of what other school districts spends. Um, it's often uh, school districts serving people of color that have the lower spending per pupil and uh, the white districts will have much higher spending. And so what you have is average spending for the state is some medium number, but the cost of that number is that you have a lot of districts that are where kids are not getting anywhere near what they need. While we have challenges in Vermont, we don't have that challenge. We're working to make sure money gets to school districts and we have that they need and we have the mechanisms to do it. These states don't have the mechanisms in place. And, and so I think there, I'm skeptical of these average numbers for that reason, that you have equity issues in these states and um, we're not really seeing the level of educational opportunity we're providing in Vermont 
what are the comparable school districts in other states spending? And that's, that doesn't show up in the averages. So, um, so that's going to be an ongoing, that's an ongoing struggle is, you know, about resources and are we providing an adequate number and pressure to reduce uh, spending. The other thing is that, you know, I think we've become aware of the impact of white supremacy culture on schools. It just, it, and it shows up in very, sometimes it's, uh, it shows up in obvious outward ways, but more often it's very subtle ways that it's very hard to sort of unpack, you know, that it's just the assumption that sort of the way the white culture thinks applies to everybody. And that if you're outside of that norm, that you're an oddball, as opposed to schools really looking at, and I'm not saying this is, you know, uniformly the case, but I think it's enough the case that it's significant challenge that school districts have, that schools are, you know, judging or trying to reshape students to sort of fit the norm, as opposed to thinking about and trying to understand them and working with them as they are to help them become adults that can thrive as adults. And I think that that's really what we want from our public education system. There's a lot of challenges to that happening so that that's true for every student. And we want to see a state that works for everybody, nobody excluded. That's a big lift, but I think it's, it's one that we have to do. Yeah. No, no, thank, thank you for ending on that note, Paul, about uh, white supremacy culture. You know, that's a, a whole nother hour long discussion. Um, At least. Uh, <laughs> you know, in and of itself. Yeah. I mean, you know, after an hour, you know, it, it might get a little grindy. But uh, yes, I am looking forward to picking up that conversation. Um, you know, with you again and with some other folks, uh, because uh, there's so many entry points to that discussion. Because as, you know, as you as you brought up, you know, there there are all these subtleties, and then there there's very direct, explicit, you know, hot button issues like critical race theory, um, which is a little bit confusing to me because you know I thought uh, that was um, that critical race theory was really in the college and 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 graduate system and I, I hadn't I, I didn't know that the K through 12 uh, system really um, you know engaged in students around critical race theory but here we are um, with uh, communities uh, showing up uh, for school board meetings uh, really opposed to, I think, really generally having conversations about uh, racism, mm -hmm. race, and, and, and white supremacy culture. So thank you for uh, making the time and taking the time uh, uh, to sit down with me and continue this ongoing conversation. I hope that we can do it again. Okay, yeah. No, this is uh, it was interesting. I appreciate your sort of stepping out and raising these issues and uh you know i'm happy to participate great thank you paul thanks again for joining us if you have any questions thoughts or suggestions about anything you heard please feel free to reach out you can contact me at infinite at voices for vtkids.org 
You can also visit our website to learn more about our work at voicesforvtkids.org. Shout out to Mike Device with the Thomas Instrumentals and Athena with all the technical support.